The Boldly Now Show, burning desire, big ideas, bold action. And welcome back to another segment of Boldly Now. I'm Rachel Morrison. And I'm Michael Sean Conaway. And I have the great pleasure of uh, bringing you a conversation with my good friend, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Uh, he is a guy who spends a lot of time on global and global catastrophic risks, um, something that will uh, have you think for a while. And I'm sure this conversation will uh, give us a new perspective on the things that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, really, as we look forward into the future, what are the, some of the things that are important for us to look towards? Daniel, welcome. Uh, really great to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Um, let's just start off with where you are. Um, you know, for all of us, uh, the pandemic has caused some, some dramatic and large shifts in life. Uh, but I find that that actually just, that's different for everybody in their world. How has your world been altered or changed? Are there things that have changed in levels of importance and urgency for you? Um, yeah, what's, what's going on over there for you? It's interesting having been communicating with people about uh, the risk of large-scale global catastrophes for a long time versus being in one that is happening uh, in terms of people's general ability to feel the reality of it. And at this point, the actual risk from the virus itself is relatively small compared to the risk of our responses to the virus. So when we're talking about things like uh, shutting down travel, which makes sense if there's a viral transmission thing, but in ways that don't protect food supply issues and then damaging uh, the pesticides getting to Northern Africa and parts of the Middle East. So locusts take over the food and uh, restaurants not being able to be the major importers of food and not having other supply chain possibilities. And so, you know, damaging the food supply for 2 billion people is a bigger deal than the viruses itself in terms of actual risk to life. So is the increase in authoritarianism of states, breakdown of international alliances, um, increase in state-based and corporate-based surveillance capabilities, escalation pathways towards violence. So, you know, we're in a situation where it's like COVID was just a big enough thing that it was able to set off a cascade of things that were all, that would have been set off by something, right? Because there was all these systemic fragilities. And so now uh, people's relationship to the topic of global catastrophic risk is different. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, how does that, does that alter your work at all? You've just been working on the things you've been working on. Is there any change of focus or change of urgency or anything for you right now? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there are a lot more people who are more um, ready to take the conversation seriously. So there's a lot of things that have accelerated for us. There's also a lot of things that have to happen on relatively quick timelines where they reach points of irreversibility. Okay. So there's a lot in my focus and work that uh, has happened because of that. Uh, responding to COVID is intelligible, right? In a way more than responding to global ecological crisis or AI risk or anything else was. It's intelligible in a different way and eminent, right? And timely and having uh, government funds allocated to it and all the news cycles and things like that. 
And so insofar as responding to COVID also means responding to the second order effects associated with COVID. Uh, there are a lot more institutional conversations happening that are at least kind of thinking about some things a little bit better, far from adequate. So um, at the same time, I would say that the general information ecology has gotten much, much worse. I mean, it was already completely fragmented, but I would say one of the things that is uh, most concerning to me, and we're doing some work towards trying to help with this, is the mismatch between the actual complexity of the problems facing the world and the complexity that most people can actually process on their own. Mm -hmm. So most people want relatively simple narratives. And so that you see this in uh, bipartisan politics is that they want some kind of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And they either want that the general authorities are generally good and uh, the virus is really serious and we should kind of listen to the authorities and stay home and, or the general authorities are probably bad. And this is an attempt to take all our civil liberties away. And the virus is probably exaggerated and the nuance of like, well, the virus is serious and there are real serious responses that need to happen. There's also a lot of predatory opportunism that various power actors have. There's a distribution of the goodness and badness of authorities towards different goals. Um, The the actual reality of it is just much more fucking nuanced and complex and not a simple narrative arc. Um, And then when it comes to the science of like, so how what is the actual case fatality rate? Is this just a flu? Is it more serious than the flu? The epidemiology is not totally trivial, right? To actually understand, wait, are we doing background tests on non-symptomatic people? And is an immunological assay of the right kind? And does it, what are the false positives and negatives? And, and then people will start talking about the association of 5G, or maybe it's not really a virus, it's an exosome. Well, most people don't have enough molecular biology to be able to answer that. And so then whoever it is that starts trending on Facebook because it hits some emotional tropes ends up being what gets shared in echo chamber effects and, and it's emotional and it's consequential. And people are actually spending more time trying to sense make while coming up with worse answers and then also wanting to act on it, wanting to take their guns and go out in front of the protest building or wanting to get Facebook and Google to shut down all news of those types. So those people don't do that which are all basically escalations towards violence of different types, all based on wrong information. Yeah. And there's, is there, are, I mean, is, is the economy, the information ecology so damaged that there's little or no hope of, of actually getting good information right now? I think that what it takes to get actionable intelligence to get enough information that your action on it will actually be appropriate action is a higher level of capacity and discipline than most people have. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing. Yeah. And so we have to have have trust somewhere that we're going to have to trust. We're going to have to, if we can't do it for ourselves and either we have go with an understanding that we're not going to ever have good sense making, or we have to trust somebody's analysis. We have to trust our own discernment capacity to know who we trust, mm-hmm. right? Like this is true in personal relationships. If you trusted somebody and got hurt because they 
embezzled from you or cheated on you or whatever it is, there's a deeper question around why did you trust them if they were not actually trustworthy, which is trusting your own capacity for discernment. And there it might be trustworthiness of intent, but also trustworthiness of capacity and sense-making. So um, to the degree that I want to cognitively offload some of the complexity to someone else, I'm still ultimately responsible for what I believe in the consequence of my actions based on those beliefs, if they're wrong or right. And so what level of understanding do I need when experts in a field disagree to even decide where I trust? Well, and I think another question to be asking around that is how can we discern a person's ability to articulate the complexity as an absolute um, truth or a part of our truth that we can put into our basket to then later synthesize and not blindly agree because of the, the poetic um, feelings that you said, the emotional pulls that it allows me to, to feel. And sometimes, you know, I, I have to admit that in these conscious, uh, quote unquote, conscious conversations around what's happening in these global pandemics, people want to be agreeable with someone who has that ability to articulate complexities mostly for the sake of because it allows them to have some sort of validity and making them feel smarter or more included in that narrative which is really not the reason why you would want to agree to someone's material in the first place and you know, then what happens is we get a lot of um, blind nodding and agreeability to what's happening for somebody and then that becomes the general narrative that leads into maybe sometimes a misled group of people taking unreasonable action in the world and you know we have enough of uh, those clusters going around and then we have everybody going in every which way direction with uh, a spoon-fed and self-imposed righteousness attached to it in some way and so I'm curious uh, Oh, how can we build our capacities better to bring a higher level of balance into what it is that we can collectively do and um, pose the, the question to even have a question about the information that we're having as, as we continue this, this journey together? Yeah. You asked a how question, and there's some very basic things that will create some traction. It's not the whole answer, but basic things. First, I'll say something about agreeableness since you mentioned that. The, the spirit of good sense-making, of good epistemology, is the earnest desire to know. And so bias of any kind is the enemy of science or epistemology or, or sense-making, right? Agreeableness and disagreeableness are both biases. And they're relational biases to relate in a particular way with the person, but that also means relating with their information in a way that predisposes a particular kind of relationship to that information, independent of what the actual truth of it is. So there are people who like to be disagreeable who will just figure out how to devil's advocate you no matter what. That's not that useful, right? Because that's a lot of wasted time and energy if what you're saying is actually true and they should, and if they didn't have that bias, they'd be like, Oh yeah, that actually makes sense. And agreeability similarly leads to um, 
echo chambers and people not actually thinking. And so I really like for people to not have either of those biases as much as possible and to separate their desire to have uh, effective relationships with people and their desire to think a particular thing about a particular topic. So I can disagree with you while totally respecting you and having a good relationship. And if I can't, then fuck us both because we're super immature, right? Um, and so it's important in a healthy relationship that I can actually uh, say, well, I can see why you came to that, that like I can, there's a lot in that that is interesting. I come to a different take, right? I disagree. Let me tell you how, where I'm coming from, but I'm not actually having any abrasiveness relationally between us because I'm not identifying with my views. And even when I disagree, I'm not sure that I'll be right. Right. I'm saying my current assessment comes to a different place than yours, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt enough that I'm staying in conversation with you. Right. And maybe your perception will change and maybe mine will. Um, so that's something on the bias of agreeableness and disagreeableness. On some specific hows, before agreeing or disagreeing with someone's perspective, you want to make sure that you can steel man their perspective well, right? Straw manning means that you rephrase the other person's argument, but in a kind of weakened or caricature version that sets up your ability to take it out. It's a classic tool of rhetoric and debate, right? Steel manning is the opposite. It's actually trying to make their argument even better than they made it, trying to really understand the essence of it and construct it in an even more clear and profound and concise and compelling way. And so, especially if there are a few competing perspectives and you can steel man all of them before coming to your own, that's a really good process. So you can be like, okay, I see these two virologists disagreeing on viral origin. It's lab made or it's not lab made. Do I understand the argument well enough to actually recreate their argument clearly where they'd be like, oh yes, you got it before I agree or disagree? Or am I agreeing or disagreeing without actually really understanding what that nature paper said or why that Nobel Prize winner said that thing because it emotionally hits the bias I resonate with is that I kind of like the conspiratorial biowarfare thing versus I kind of don't like that. Um, and if you don't understand it well enough to steel man both sides, you shouldn't have a strong perspective. You should just say, I don't know. And just sit in the unknowing and say, if I want to know enough, I have to study. But to have a strong belief where I don't understand the topic is much worse than just saying, I don't know. Like that's, that's the best way to make a jackass out of myself. So I would rather say, if I want to know enough, what does it take to actually be able to know? Where people who have more expertise than me disagree. And there's a bunch of humility that comes in. Like, you know, I have a pretty good science background, but when I see two virologists who are both eminent, who spent 30 years just studying that topic, who disagree, I'm like, I'm not going to learn everything they know in a hurry. How the fuck would I even think I have a chance of understanding? Well, possibly, possibly because they might have become eminent because there are certain biases they do ride that give that make certain hypotheses and they explore them. And so maybe because I don't know the space as well, I have more epistemic flexibility that if I really try to understand their arguments and steel man them, I can see something between them with more epistemic flexibility. That'd be the only hope I would have of reconciling that at all.
right? Um, but that actually ends up working, which is pretty amazing. I want, I want to just uh, uh, mark what you said there. Like, and, and I remember um, uh, early, my early Zen training life being told, don't, I don't know is probably the wisest thing we could say about anything. Uh, so that, that really resonates. But the, I think that's, I think that, I think we, we kind of feel like we must know or must have an opinion, especially about this COVID thing. Uh, it seems that, the, and, and maybe that's part of the, the, part of the, uh, the, the polemic of, of Infowar in general is it, it makes us feel like we have to pick a side and that I don't know means that maybe we don't care or something like that. And I, I think that maybe it's a, um, it's a higher order of answer period. And then the second thing I got out of that, Daniel, is that if I want to know, it requires an investment. So it has to be important to me. And so that means there's going to be whole categories of sense making that maybe I don't engage in. Um, and, and I do have big pieces of things that I don't know about. Uh, and then in regards to something that I may be wanting to put into the world or some action I might want to take, it might be really, really important for me to invest the time to know uh, in the, the way you're talking about. So I think that's really a valuable, uh, a valuable piece. Um, if I want to get buff or I want to learn to paint well or I want to play the piano, there's a difference between I want that and I can actually do it well, which is called a shit ton of training. Yeah. And so coming to understand biology and virology and epidemiology and coming to understand political science and economic theory well are not trivial, right? And especially to try to have some grand narratives that synthesize knowing all of those things together. Um, now, if I say I don't know, it could be seen as I don't care. I generally take it, I mean, and sometimes that is, right? Someone doesn't know because they really don't give a shit. But it can also be that you care more. I actually care so much that I'm not willing to have false confidence that biases me because once I start to have, uh, I think I know now I just have confirmation bias where I look for things that confirm that and throw out the other things and surround myself with people that agree with me. And if I really care, that's the worst thing I could do. I ruin my ability to be connected to reality at that point, instead wanting to just get confirmation of a particular type of social signal from a particular audience that will confirm that for me. And so I'd much rather be able to say, I really care and I really don't know. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's funny. You said that I just thought of, um, of some kind of the, of the, uh, you know, the notion that democracy doesn't work without a, a, a well-informed public. It seems like I don't know may actually be one of the best states of informed that you could uh, be honest about. Um, it's and- the beginning of the possibility of a real inquiry. It's the beginning of the possibility of coming to know anything in a worthwhile way. Yeah. Great. Um, Now, now, you know, like, so, so obviously here we are in the state, we're dealing with political realities, economic realities, in some case, health, health realities that are, are very uh, disruptive. Um, Can I say one more thing to Rachel's question on the how, just one very simple, simple thing. And then I'll pick back up on the other thing. Go ahead. If there's something you're starting to think is probably true, where there is division and belief around it. Find some people who are really smart, who disagree with you and talk to them. And ideally people who know the field better than you do. And notice one, see, can I steel man their arguments? Do they have some data I don't? And also notice your own bias. Am I trying to discredit them instantly? Am I trying to identify their cognitive biases and say they're a conspiracy theorist or they're a standard modeler or whatever it is so that I don't have to take seriously the fact that they might be fucking up my confidence right now? 
That's Great. Super helpful. Yeah. Um, so considering the impact that uh, this uh, pandemic has had on us, and you know, obviously there's a health impact for some people, um, there's certainly economic and, and uh, you know, uh, political impacts, uh, and then and uncertain future impacts um, is, is really, I think, one place that, that many of us are standing, especially as we start to look out in like six months, a year, two years, three years, you know, like, you know, in, in an attempt to either A, predict the future, which I, you know, we're not a very big fan of, but when you actually start looking at, um, you know, being generative with your ideas about the future and what might be a better state, um, you know, what, what do you kind of have to offer us in terms of like, you know, where are we at now? Uh, and, and what is some of the things that, that, that are, some of the forces that are at, at work at, at defining what our near-term future might look like, six, 12, 18 months, and then really what are some of the alterations that are, are that there are actors out there pushing on us, and then maybe some things that you're thinking of or we might think of that would be a desirable state to move towards after this, this pandemic or after this period of disruption. If we just think about the pandemic and the whole conversation around return to normal, uh, a lot of things have been really profoundly damaged already. And, and I don't just mean people who died, right? And the uh, family members and emotions and those who depended on them financially and all of those things. <clears throat> all of that's a big deal. But the number of small businesses that closed, and the small businesses go out of business for something like this, it's a lot like cutting down an old growth forest that you just can't regrow quickly. You can fail a business that has small margins much faster than you can regrow a bunch of new ones. Now, huge businesses can come in who have war chests and start to buy up that space. So that represents, you know, one of the most severe consolidation of wealth possibilities that we've ever seen. Similarly, when the market crashes, and all of the real infrastructural value stocks are really cheap. So those who have a bunch of liquid capital can buy them all up. That's again, massive consolidation of wealth on what was already an unsustainable economic inequality. We see that the GDP went down, but the debt went up and we already had more of our GDP debt servicing than was sustainable. And so that represents basically a, you know, a fatal blow to an already mostly dead system. What happens from that? And then we start to look at the damage that's happened to the EU as a system and what that means for Eurasia and the Belt and Road Initiative and you know so many things like that. We start to look at food supply chains. Um, so if we just got, let's say that we got a magical vaccine tomorrow. We won't, but let's say we did we'd be returning into a world that was radically damaged, not by the virus, but by all of the second and third order effects. So if we wanna return to uh, a not really damaged world, we have to fix not just the virus, but fix those other things. And what it takes to fix those would require a level of people understanding them. So it would require better sense-making and way the fuck better coordination, i.e. governance at both, uh, you know, nation state levels between public and private sector and internationally. And if we got that, we could make it much, much, much better, right? Because those are, those would be significant changes to the core civilization systems. So we will come out of this 
different. And it will either be meaningfully worse or meaningfully better in terms of the overall health and integrity of the global commons and systems. And then looking out beyond that time or looking out as that is, is, is this this thing that, I mean, I just, I'm, I really clear, flat, simple question. Is this, is this an opportunity for systems upgrades or, or championing things that might be of long-term benefit to humanity and, and the planet? Yes, of course. Uh, you mentioned when we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the frame that some people are holding of the kind of pause that this is, right? Well, the most powerful actors in the world not only don't have a pause, they've increased their activity manifold, right? Um, the Kremlin and the CCP and the DNC and the GOP, they're not paused, right? They're fucking power grabbing like crazy and trying to advance their agendas and doing so with really asymmetric information capabilities and capital capabilities and team capabilities and actuation capabilities. So anyone who feels like it's a great pause that also says where you are in the food chain kind of, of what's influencing the world. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that are being advanced that in, when you mention opportunity, that some people are seeing as opportunities <laughs> to advance their personal interests in ways that are bad for the interests of others or the, or the whole. So there are some people who, for whatever reason, really believe in or like or are aesthetically attracted to authoritarian type structures. So when you see you know, the president of the Philippines, when it was time for quarantine, just so happily take and say, yes, yeah, shoot people who are violating quarantine. It just appeals to a sensibility like his to take authoritarian measures of those kinds. So, and then more technologically advanced countries, those same people are looking at implementing massive thermal scans and AI drone type capabilities and surveillance capabilities. And how much is just their own personal economic incentive associated being the major, uh, you know, funders or, or owners of those companies and those technologies versus is it aligned with political agendas or ideological agendas? So there's a lot of people pursuing opportunities, but that are not the opportunities that we would say create the highest quality of life for everybody in a good, in, in what I would call a good sense-making frame. Uh, now there are some people doing things that are authentically really interesting right now and that could move things in the right direction, but they are not, they don't have as much resource. They aren't as well coordinated. So as the food supply chains break, this is a real interesting one, right? So we see the culling, which is this very funny sanitized term, right? Um, culling of all the chickens and the pigs and like that and burying the potatoes and um, pouring down the drain, all the milk, just as many people exist that need to eat. Like, what the fuck? Why are we destroying all the supply when there's just as much aggregate demand? It's just the demand used to go to McDonald's, right? It used to go to a few major distribution centers. When those distribution centers can't get it and you're operating on relatively tighter margins, then the supply side is like, well, we can't keep paying for these pigs or these chickens if we can't sell stuff. So it's actually cheaper for us to just kill them and destroy them. But then all the people still need food. And we're like, like, that's just a supply chain issue, 
right? That's a supply intelligence of just, can we get the supply to the demand through a different route? Well, the longer the route is, the, easy, the more steps there are that can damage it. So the movement to say, well, we should actually have food supply be more distributed and more local. Oh, and by the way, if it's more local, there won't be factory farms because nobody wants to be around a factory farm because they're fucking horrible. And so you have to put them somewhere far away. And then that, of course that means it's centralized shipping to everywhere else. So does that mean that we can get better ethical treatment of animals, better environmental care, better health for the people and better robustness and resiliency of the food supply grid simultaneously? Yeah, totally. That should happen, right? And there's some totally inadequate, but some movements happening in that direction. This is an interesting one because this is something where like, anyone can engage to some degree, right? You can just say, I'm going to do a home garden, right? And that's engaging to some degree, or I'm going to help a community garden in our area. I'm going to help our small town start working on local resilience. Like, can we get a couple people to start engaging in growing stuff for this region as opposed to everything being based on import and export? And so there's like, there's real local shit you can do to engage in that. At the same time, there's stuff that some people need to do to say who have real supply chain capabilities and enough money to front the costs to be able to, you know, meet the supply and demand where it's at. So um, for every one of the places where it could go really bad, there's an opportunity, right? The kids not being at school and the combination of them getting way more screen addiction as a result of more domestic abuse happening as a result of damage happening in their social development, like that's pretty bad. Actually, when you think about what that means for a generation is pretty bad. But the opportunity to say, fuck, let's, we have to fix that. And while we're fixing it, let's just kind of rethink education from scratch. And how do we, if we were going to be delivering education, not through the legacy system, how would we do it? That's a pretty awesome opportunity. A bunch of jobs go away. And we realized, wow, there was a bunch of jobs that were really just bullshit jobs, right? Like that were just make work kind of jobs. Um, well, if those people can't feed their families, they don't care because like it was meeting some need. But we also get to say, can we start to rethink our, like what productive and meaningful work and how people get their you know, finances met are. So I'd say, if you go across the sectors, just take healthcare, take, you know, pick every sector and say, uh, what are the risks in this space and what harm has already happened and associated with that to solve the harm, to prevent the risks and to make it better. What would better look like? What are the opportunities in that space? That's a valuable thought process. Great. Um, so let's think about, you know, somebody might be watching this, this video right now, Daniel, and, and, you know, they're, they're, they're maybe there's, they've, they've kind of got uh, some of the harm info war, has done to our information ecology, and they have a, a sense that like that it's difficult to make sense, but they have a longing or like a just a general feeling that they want to be of service. Um, you know, right now, you know, how do they how do they get started? I mean, like like, and we've talked we've talked you know through the years a lot about consciousness and what we mean by ra raising consciousness, but you know, like what are what are some of those things right now? This is a a moment where we get to retake we get to take stock of our lives. Um, and uh, think about how we might reconstitute ourselves differently than, than before. Um, you know, what are some of the things that, that we can look to? What are the, the steps that we might be able to take to be able to participate meaningfully 
uh, in a world that works better or, or ultimately a thriving world. I'm paused because I know, I know statistically that whatever I say, even if it is inspiring, won't make it through people's memory after they scroll Facebook or Instagram the first time or get on a phone call that's stressful. And so um, inspiration that isn't going to last through a bunch of hypernormal stimuli, not worth so much. So if I wanted to say, what could people do? And they would feel inspired after this, but then they would lose it. The first thing I want to say is, well, what could you do to not lose it? What could you do to stay engaged in a conversation that would keep orienting you in the right direction? So that's kind of meta to the specific thing to do, but it's how to be engaged in a way that will keep engaging you. So uh, I would say, if I had to pick one thing I would have people do is, uh, figure out how to engage more often with people and content that are actively doing things that you find inspiring that will orient your attention continuously that way. Because whether it's Facebook or your family or your job or your kids or whatever it is, there'll be a lot of things that are orienting you in other directions and being oriented to what is it that I feel really deeply called, you know, which very much might be your kids, but from a different frame, right? What is it I feel most called uh, to engage in, I would say, figure out how to engage. And this is like, this is the purpose of church, right? Or the Sangha it was that uh, you kind of need to keep coming back and having some regular um, community reminder because humans are social primates. And the thing that affects us more than anything is who we're around. And I know that's why, you know, in addition to this festival, you're working on putting out more content so people can have a regular kind of exposure. That's the meta thing I would say. I can now say some more specific things uh, if you want. Yeah. Yeah, what do you see? So somebody listening to this is a online marketer and somebody's an accountant and someone's a construction worker and somebody is a farmer and somebody's a trust fund kid and somebody's an Instagram model. They can't all do the same thing right? Like they have very different skills, very different knowledge, very different calling. And so if I start saying, okay, well, here's what we do to restructure global finance. Well, who, which of those people will that be the really relevant thing for? Um, so it's hard to try to speak to a very general audience in that way. So what I would say is whatever level of expertise you have and whatever kind of areas of calling, there is definitely useful shit you can do if you feel called to do useful things. And if you want to do useful things at more scale, which is totally not the only thing to do, because there's a lot of people who for ego reasons want to think about scale while totally neglecting everything around them. And so much, so many problems would be better if people were just not neglecting what was around them. Um, then we wouldn't all be depending upon some scaled thing solving all of our problems, which is what leads to a few companies and organizations running the whole world who aren't close enough to possibly have the optics to know how to be helpful. So it might be like, well, I'm taking care of homeless dogs in my city. This doesn't address homeless dogs for all cities or all animals, but it fucking addresses these ones, right? And if I can, after I do that, start to put out, here's what we did that was helpful in our city for other cities, right? Like those are good steps. So right now with COVID, there's a lot of people who are lonely enough that they're killing themselves. 
do you, and some of them will end up being people that you find out about that you knew, right? Or who are just older people who are just really suffering. So you don't have to have any very specialized knowledge or any high profile sense making to be able to see where there's need and reach out and be responsive to it. So that's a huge thing. To the degree that you feel called to things that are systemic. Question it actually, because it's probably wrong. I'm saying this as someone who's systemically focused, but partly that is just because we're not getting local news, we're getting global news. And so our attention is being bombarded by things that aren't actually in the world that we're in and that are at a scale that we really can't fucking do anything about or even know how to make sense about. So it mostly just, that is the narrative warfare at a high level that's trying to get our beliefs so we vote and purchase and retweet in a particular way to support those who are acting at that scale with specific types of agendas. And your desire to have a strong opinion and be able to do some online warrior shit is largely some stronger forces having co-opted you into being a soldier for something you don't even understand. Well, and it's, off, it's often a, a distraction tactic, actually, and then an avoidance tactic that many of us use to not actually do the work on where it's at for us at, an, at a very, very local level, the internal level, the home level, the, the direct community level. And we distract ourselves with so many of these narratives as an avoidance tactic. It can be avoidance. It can be, um, you know, grandiose gratification. It can be simply the addictive, I can't not know, right? Um, whatever. It can be the hypernormal stimulus of, oh shit, elites are drinking baby blood. I have to know about that, right? Because it's, it's like it designed to hit all of the big, the, the stuff that's going to light somebody's need to know up. Um, but there will be some people who are supposed to do things at a beyond regional level and scope. And then it's, if you feel really clearly called there, what do you have to study to be able to understand the problem space well enough to understand the solutions well enough to implement stuff? If you are wanting to help, not just with community gardens in your area, but with food supply so that millions of pigs don't need to be slaughtered. One, can you even learn what you would need to in time, right? Just like reality check that. And to the extent that you already have a supply chain company or whatever, and you think maybe you could, then it's like, okay, who, are the experts you can bring in right away who are the to and especially ones that have dissenting opinions where you again get to ask them the questions steel man them come to understand it so that you make sure that you understand the problem space well to craft solutions that make sense so that when you act on it you're acting effectively um to the degree that people feel called to act at more scale it's very much like lifting more weight or playing more advanced piano pieces there's more training involved Well said, because then we have to have the, the capacity to do the steel manning, and that takes time. To and there's more complexity. More complexity, yeah. If I'm, if I'm doing a local community garden, there will be economics involved. Who buys the piece of land, whatever. But I don't need to understand dark pools and complex financial instruments to do it in the way that I do if I'm trying to figure out what's happening with the um, global economic stimulus, right? And so there is just going to be at scale, inherently, more things included in the scale that means more complexity. Well, what's so great about complexity, uh, even though it can get pretty vast pretty quickly, is that it lends a, a wonderful invitation for collaboration. 
and can't solve it on your own. Yeah, but I and I, I do think that, that one of the things that we do skip over a lot, and I think you know, Rachel, I, I'm I'm thinking what you just said is like, like when you can collaborate at a local level, you can actually coordinate enough people to have enough range of opinions and views and and capacities and capabilities. It it it, it can be difficult, but it's a, it, you know organizing a hundred people is very different than than 4,000 or 5,000, which is very, very different than 300 million or 8 billion. And um, I think a lot of times, especially in, in, in a lot of our, our world and our movement is we talk in these really grand things and then we don't even do organizing in levels of 10 or 20 or 30. Um, we're or talking even, about the big, you know. but not actually engaging in the, the, the local. Um, There's a very important part of the classically left-right conversation. The left-right was supposed to be a healthy dialectic between values that were all important that in the like steel man, different perspectives, right? That this dialectic between um, rights and responsibilities between individual and relationships, right? That that dialectic would happen. Not supposed to be a um, warfare, but you have to balance rights and responsibilities in the right way. And either one of them on their own with, without balance ends up becoming pathological. So if people have rights and they don't have attendant responsibilities, right? So you're raising kids, they have, there's a right that they have to expect that their parents are gonna feed them. And their parents start as they have capability, progressively they start being involved in helping wash the dishes and do chores. There's some responsibilities associated with that that teaches them how to be a healthy person, an effective person in the world, because that's going to be the case in the world, right? Do I have a, we start talking about everyone should have universal health care as a right. Awesome. Who pays for it? Who pays the doctors and the nurses and the hospitals and the diagnostics and builds the MRI machines? Now let's start really, well, the rich, wait, wait, wait. Okay, let's just run all of the channels of, so whose money is taken by force backed up by guns, right? Which is ultimately what law is, is a monopoly of violence. And how does that make sense? And what types of incentives does that create and anti-incentives? And just, you have to really think through the whole rights and responsibilities thing. It's one of the reasons democracies fail faster than monarchies generally is and faster than republics is people will vote themselves rights that they aren't willing to take the responsibility to implement. And so then basically everyone is a child, right? In their consciousness. Um, and that doesn't work. Similarly, if people are responsible for something and they don't have the attendant rights associated, that's some kind of servitude or slavery, right? So it's important that those things um, be balanced. And so the right side is if I want to operate at larger scale and have people be interested in what I have to say there, I kind of have to earn that, right? If I want to have, like having people listen to what I have to say is like, like it's a, there's a privilege that's associated with that, but I, do, I don't have the right to it without the responsibility that I had to take first to offer things of value. So one of the things I would say about scale is you earn it. You earn operating at scale if that's your calling and it shouldn't be most people's by doing a good job at smaller scales. Great, sensible, makes sense. Um, I think that's, I think it's funny. It's like, um, it, it, we, you know, we, we all the time start thinking that maybe we have an idea for large solutions at scale. Um, 
and and I and I know for myself, it's like the it's taken me years to actually learn to slow down enough to even ask what I mean when I think I have an idea for a solution scale. And um, you know, like the 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 process of actually examining the underlying assumptions and and the and the just huge amount of no data, like no proof, no data, uh, uh, pieces of, of kind of, if you will, uh, imagination without a relationship to, okay, I've imagined something now, I need to go check out and, and find out um, if that works. Now, if we're an entrepreneur, we could say, hey, I imagine having the, the most badass music app ever. I'm not gonna get a, I'm not gonna walk up to an investor and say, hey, give me a hundred million dollars because I'm having the most badass music app ever. They're gonna say, great, here's a thousand dollars go do something, or here's $100,000, go do something, show to me that you can, at a very small level, make something badass. <laughs> but we, I think when we start looking at, you know, wanting to alter the, the, the systems in which the world operates, uh, we, we have that kind of naivete, like we're gonna, like if somebody just give me the authority to say how it's gonna be, man, I could just fix all this stuff really, really quick. And um, I mean, it, that, that's, a, I think that's, we would agree, that's, that's that naivete that ends up making decisions that fuck up shit worse than it was fucked up before we made those decisions. Um, and yet there needs to be some kind of latticework or framework for us to begin to understand how to try out ideas. Um, you know, and, and, and not the old ideas, not the, you know, the past 200 years of, of, of retreaded ideas over and over again, but um, there has to be a way for us to begin to think new thoughts and try new things. Um, you know, where do we get the space to do that and how do we carve that out of of what is you know as i think we agree as a, a a crumbling society how do we not just hold on to the stones of of the things around us and try to keep it from falling down and still have enough space to to try to stand up new things in the world is it, what you're saying brings up for me this dialectic between there's a kind of hubris or audacity. People will use those terms to be entrepreneurial and think you can do something that's never been done. But that has to be balanced with the kind of humility of understanding why it's never been done and what attempts have failed by people that were competent and smart um, and what things have, you know, yeah, there's a very important... It, it's kind of like when we were saying, if I've got two scientists who spent 30 years studying a topic and they disagree, how the fuck could I possibly even imagine that I could come to have a view on it when I'm not going to study all they studied? Well, that, there's a certain hubris in that, but there's also the humility of, I know I don't know what they know, but maybe I can come to understand how they constructed the ideas well enough that by being able to take both of their positions, maybe more flexibly than they do, because maybe they hold their own position more, I can gain some insight. So there's, there is a kind of faith in a possibility, right? That is almost like hubris. It's a faith in a possibility that I could do that. Same with like build a new thing. But if I haven't looked at, so what are all, what are all the attempts to try and do that that failed or that ended up going another way because they realized that was actually the wrong thing to do? Then it's just almost guaranteed that I'll just fail and waste the energy of the other people who engage. Given a cross-section of human beings in different places and locations, uh, uh, obviously with at least re enough resources to think about the issue, um, who would like to uh, improve things on both local levels and global levels in terms of, um, you know, 
healthy, healthy environment, uh, healthy food, healthy lifestyle, uh, uh, with a, a relative amount of safety without actually having the, the keys to authority, um, you know, you know, in the middle of that sandwich, not at the top, is, is there, is there something for we, is, for us to do? I mean, we obviously have some kind of desire and passion to, to, you know, make a difference or evolve things or set things on a better path. You know, it, it is, I guess it's like, maybe there is no framework, but if there was a framework, you know, like what, what is it that has us have the capacity to do that? Or is it just allowing the self-organizing universe to, to, to do its, do its work. And we actually just have to trust that what we're doing is the right thing to do or that we, our effort itself adds up to something. I mean, do you see where I'm, I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place with this, Daniel? It relates to the scale question we asked earlier. You're asking a question at maximum scale. Great. I'll, I'll reframe then. I'll, I'll just say at hyper-local scales for right now, because I can certainly imagine that better than I can at no, I mean, even at the scale of the cross-section of who we're talking about, right? Okay. That's a very huge we. Yeah. And it's a very diverse we that have very different interests and proclivities and capacities and access. So for me to answer at that generalized level, it'll be a very generalized answer, which I can do. I'll do, I'll do it, but it'll be almost platitude like. Um, okay. We'll, we'll take that and then we'll, we'll reframe it afterwards after we see, we see how that, that, that fits. Great. Thank you. Because it, it's important to note if I was talking with the American retail association, what can we do? And it's the heads of the large retail businesses. We could really talk through with the things that they're capable of doing and what their mandates to shareholders are and whatever, what could they actually do? We could start to map out the opportunity space and problem space. If we were talking to the joint chiefs of staff or the national security council or a local group of farmers, we could answer that. Right. Or, or the association of accountants or whatever it is. Right. But when it's this, Broad, people don't have a shared sense of what the desirable world is, anything more than just like a feeling, right? Is it more libertarian or is it more socialist? Yeah. Those are more different than most people acknowledge. And yeah. so the projects of what we're doing towards it, is it more kind of permaculture, low-tech or super high-tech transhumanist, upload my brain to the cloud? Like even what is desirable is thought very, very differently. And our levels of understanding of how to advance towards it plus our capabilities. So um I'm just noticing that there are bit, there's kind of baked in frames in the way we ask those questions right. that are worth exploring. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I'm like, you know, I just wanted to be in the kind of presence to the inquiry kind of moment here. And, um, you know, you think you talk about, you know, and I know you don't like the word impact. We talk about, you know, impact work or all of these things that we use to describe, um, like the things that we're doing, but I think in, in general, I, I'm just kind of confronted with the fact that it's actually not very well questioned. We actually don't, we don't say what we mean by them. We don't, or at least we don't have a, we don't have a reliable definition that could be, could be shared amongst a lot of people. Um, but well, we speak, we speak about them as if they're real things. Yeah. And to an evangelical, um, protesting abortion clinics is doing, uh, impact work and to say certain um, democratically oriented people supporting Planned Parenthood fundraising is impact work. And they're at, they're two pieces of impact work equally earnestly motivated at direct war with each other. Right. 
And the same is true about like environmentalism and climate change work versus oil worker rights for an oil union. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's just worth thinking more precisely about some of these things. Yeah. Um, well, and to, oh, go ahead, Jordan. Were you going to say? No, no, please. Okay, I was going to say to take it to even an even smaller scale, right? Okay, we've gone to the the cross section to maybe some of these regional spaces and you know very niche environments, but to take it to even a smaller scale, I, I'm curious. What are some questions that you ask yourself? before you decide that you care enough about something to put some effort into knowing about it, growing it, putting your focus to it, so that when people that are listening to this have their own experience and their own self-inquiry decide if they, they care enough about something. Like, how, what are those questions to be asking ourselves at that time to see if we should be putting our effort or our attention, or our study, or our, our intelligence, or our heart, with, with all the things that we can care about, because we can care about all of it in, in very equal ways, but to, to get down to where we're not just sitting there taking in all the information, but actually putting out something, what are, what are some good questions that we could be asking ourselves? Maybe, how are you asking yourself when you choose to do something? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's interesting, though, the how the we affects it, how different it is when I, if I'm at phases in my life where I haven't had any projects I was running and I'm just in an interstitial place and I'm kind of researching. So it's just with my own bandwidth, right, versus initiating a project. And now there's a team, so I have way more bandwidth, but I also have way more output that is expected to be able to keep paying that team, right? Whether it's nonprofit or for-profit and to be able to grow the capacity. Well, all of a sudden I'm actually getting more constrained on what we focus on, even though there's more, more total capacity. Right. And um, this is why the experience of actually running a business or running a nonprofit where you're responsible for the finance is a, can be a very valuable learning experience is you start to ask, okay, this seems super fascinating, but there are a total of 75,000 hours worth of activity per day we'd like to do. And we can't do all of it. So what things do I do factoring the opportunity cost of the other things I'm not going to do? Well, I'd like to be able to do more total stuff than we actually have the bandwidth to do. So if I just use all of our bandwidths doing immediate work, we won't grow our bandwidth. We're just using it. So I have to think about how do I do the things that are immediately needed and things, how do we use our bandwidths in ways that grow our bandwidth, right? That show the effectiveness of what we're doing in ways that can grow the team and grow the, the financing, the legibility, whatever. So you think about, is this a project we can actually figure out? If we're going to start researching, is this a project we can actually figure out well enough to offer differential novel insights? Do we have the team and capability to do that? And then is this something that if we had those insights, we could act on? Do we have the channels to be able to actuate the things that would be needed? Or do we just have those insights and we're just sitting on them? And then the opportunity cost of what other things am I not doing to do this thing? Right. So those are types of frameworks that are very basic, but that can be valuable to think about the finiteness of time. Well, 
Yeah, your classic two by two matrix. To take it even more basic, let's just say, yeah, to make it even more basic, let's say you're one person with two hands and a life choice to make, right? Very basic. And a lot of people are, are that one person in that one room right now with just two hands and that one life choice to make right now. And so I'm curious, what questions would they be asking themselves about what's in each hand to, to help them decide on what that one choice is? Because And maybe that choice for them is like that one thing that they've been kind of putting off their entire life. And this quarantine moment is that moment for them to actually make that choice. So now the way you frame that is a rephrasing of what Michael asked, because that one person is now the one person avatar of the we, which is the everybody, because those one people are all different again. So I will now go to the very generalized answer I said that I would. Um, yeah, and I just want to, I just want to point, like, we're all very smart, you know, people. We've done a lot of study and a lot of, and you just, like, this is hard stuff. You, 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 you actually get, things get very undistinct very, very quick, yet, you know, when, when you're asking a question, Rachel, if I felt like you're asking a distinct question, but actually if you examine it, it's not very distinct. It's very generalized. Um, so let's, let's hear the generalized answers, even though it may not be a very effective answer. I think it's, it's worth now at least hearing and exploring that. What we were asking is, how do humans live a meaningful life? Right? Like that's the question you're asking is, how, how do different humans who want their life to contribute to the well-being of the whole in some ways have their life actually be well engaged and well used? And that is the core of all religious and spiritual and cultural and philosophical kinds of inquiries, right? So that's why I said what I'm going to answer is going to end up being pretty general because it's a big fucking question. And it's a um, so a few things I can say. The reason I was pointing out that, wait, are we trying to end all the abortion clinics or make abortions available to everybody? Is that how to have my life be able to create impact? Impact towards what? What is my fundamental ethical framework of what good is? Right? How do I make sense of not just what I think is, but what ought? And so to inform what I'm going to do, there's the sciencey side, the sense-making side of what is. The forecasting side of what will be the effect of a specific action and the ethical side of what is a good life? What is a meaningful world? What, what am I wanting to contribute to realizing that most of the things that people do actually elicit counter responses and drive wars rather than actually advance anything. And then they drive arms races and escalating wars and they drive second and third order negative effects. Right. Um, and so, we build a cool little communication app so we can just send these tweets to each other. Cause that seems really like, it's kind of cool, the short thing. And then all of a sudden world war three is being waged over it because the president is using it. And it was like, Oh fuck with it. Those were big unintended consequences of the things that we were doing. So, um, so how do we make sense of the world, make sense of what is actually good and right and think through the effects of our actions. Right. And then how do we actually act on those things in a prioritized way? And how do we increase our capacity to keep doing so? Those are, I think, some reframes of the underneath the question you're asking, if I was trying to make it more precise. And so the main thing I would say is like, there's a, 
there's a development of the humans. There's the engagement of us, but also the development of us so that our engagement keeps being better guided and more effective, right? And this is the, how do I know more about what's going on? How do I do a better job at prioritizing? How do I do a better job of communicating in compelling and effective ways? Uh, all those things. And how do I make sure that what I'm doing is actually what's most meaningful to me and my time isn't just hijacked by habit, addiction, fear, lack of courage, uh, distraction, and other things, right? That's one, of the, that's one of the biggest ones is what are the things that are hijacking your attention that on your deathbed will not be some of your highlights, right? That won't be the like, well, those are the things that I'm really proud of or feel really grateful about. And how can you become progressively less hijacked by those? Also, humans have complex motivation, right? I want to make these amazing things happen in the world. Why? Well, because I want to save all these kids over here. Why? Well, because I care about those kids. That's true. But I also want the credit of being the guy who did that because of unresolved kind of wounded ego insecurity stuff where I want that particular credit. And I think that chicks will actually dig it. And I think I'll make some money in the process and it will address the fact that I never got approval from my parents that I'm projecting on the world, whatever, right? Like motive is complex. So typically whenever someone is doing something, there's like 10 or 15 different reasons they're actually doing it. They're usually only aware of half of them. Half of them are subconscious even to them. And of the ones they're aware of, they usually only admit one or two in the executive summary of the project statement. And so part of it also in terms of how to be more effective is to become more reflective into your own motives and how to heal the things that are actually siphoning energy away, right? As you grow and heal, some of the motives will become deeper and some will become less. So you want to know which are the ones that are coming from the deepest truth of who I am and which are the ones that are coming from distraction, trauma, insecurity, and other stuff. So there's personal development to be able to have rather than mixed motives that are doing like two masters issues where it is more like a laser, all coherent. So I think what I just said is people need, if they want to become more effective, they need to study the topics they want to influence more. Like if you're really wanting to help with food security stuff, you better study soil and agriculture and different types of agricultural systems and why it went the way that it went. What are the financial challenges and whatever, so that you understand what is the problem space well enough to come up with good solutions. So you need to kind of actually study the space. You need to look at what things you can implement because there's a bunch of stuff you'll only learn by doing. And as you start to do it, you'll learn in the process a tremendous amount of stuff. So what can I implement with my current capacities? So that as I'm studying more, one, I'm having impact now and I'm learning in a tangible grounded way. And how can I both continuously be reminded of what's most meaningful to me so that I don't get distracted and hijacked? It, hijacked? And how can I be engaged in a kind of personal development process that makes my motivation itself clearer? And so those are the questions I would ask underneath that would give rise to the, how can we do good things? And my main answer would be the easiest way to succeed at that is to interact with people who are succeeding at that better more often. 
you will be the average of the five people you spend the most time around all the proximity is destiny, all those types of statements. We are social primates more than we like to admit. And it's why we spend our time on Facebook and Instagram, just actually scrolling at pictures of other primates, right? Like that's the thing that really fucking captures us is, and it's so interesting because what we're, it's like junk food where you extract the salt, fat, and sugar and remove all the nutrients. So you maximize the hypernormal stimuli without any of the real thing. And that's what the social media thing is, is it, it maximizes the likes and pictures and interactions and total number of people while removing almost all actual kinds of real contact and vulnerability that are scary. But it shows the longing for social contact and then also the way we're influenced by what we're around. So if people want to actually be doing more interesting things, so in each of those areas, how do I get, how do I do the personal development to have ego insecurity stuff get in the way less? Well, who, is it a therapist? Is it a group of friends that do inquiry together? What is the process? Is it a church or a sangha? Like what can I engage in that will ongoingly help me structurally built into my life? Study. What groups, you know, do I, I'm going to move into a rationalist house in Berkeley where I'm around people that are doing that all the time, or I'm going to create a book study groups, so whatever it is, so that I'm actively engaged in learning things, right, that are meaningful. Um, if I want to get better at actualizing the things I know, who are the people that are the most fucking productive that I know where I really respect that and spend time, figure out how to be useful to them because they're busy, right? So figure out how to free more of their time than I'm asking for. Um, and because I want to learn how they think about the world that makes them so productive. So I would say the thing I can offer that is most useful to all this is actually the social hack of don't think you'll do it just through iron discipline, do it through actually intentionally doping what you're taking in through your senses regularly, which is mostly who. I'm, I'm a little uh, in a space where I don't want to know the answer to this next question. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Uh, but I am curious. Um, what have you been just kind of OCD wanting to learn about? What's that? Maybe it's keeping you up at night. Like what's the thing for you and, and the real, real, what's the real thing that you are just hyper focused on getting as much information as possible, right? And what's the one learning that just blew your mind about it so far? One of the questions that has been very central in my mind lately is how do we, how to architecture social systems that do not reward sociopathy. Sociopathy, narcissism, sadism, or any other basically power seeking dispositions that also uh, are either like to or are willing to cause harm with the application of that power. Um, underneath so many of the problems in the world is that the people who are power seeking and willing to use power in ways to gain more power end up being the most powerful people in the world and defining the world. And the people who care about the global commons who don't want to cause harm 
and who aren't power seeking themselves usually don't get much power, which means that they don't influence the, the, the overall dynamics of the space. And it's clear to me that we definitely go extinct if that stays true. And so this is, you know, this, this is an old question. This is kind of the purpose of law, right? The purpose of law is to collectively define what are the types of really predatory behaviors we agree we don't do, and we will, we will shut those down. But of course, throughout time, it's like a civilization will create an effective legal system. And then the a legal and governance system, the, the government is supposed to make laws that regulate the very predatory aspects of, of markets and personal advantage seeking. But then that means that the main goal of those predatory markets is to get around or capture the regulators, right? Which is what we call the watchdog issue. So they either have to figure out how to hide it, right? So seven offshore accounts that are hard to penetrate or whatever it is, or they have to figure out how to pay for the campaign budgets um, and pay for the legislators that affect, so they've captured the watchdog uh, functionally. And so typically the people who are oriented to advance personal power are good at finding niches to do so. And so then the question is, how do we rigorously close all those niches where those types of behavior are never incented and that, uh, and don't end up gaining power and the decision-making across the space is actually the, the power of choice making is also bound to wisdom wisdom, goodness, those types of things. I could talk about this a lot, like what doesn't work and what could work. And, but you asked me what's something I'm thinking about a lot and what's something that surprised me. Something that surprised me as I started to study this was how much the world is actually run by sociopaths and, uh, sadists in many cases um with and sadist just basically means sociopath is willing to cause harm to advance their goal but the the cause harm isn't the goal but there are some people for whom they have actually kind of fetishized the exercising of their power right and uh and we've certainly seen heaps of cases of this throughout history it's it's still true it's just generally hidden but um, the book, The Dictator's Handbook, is a nice kind of intro to it. There's a short little cartoon that somebody made on YouTube that was really good called uh, Rules for Rulers. But it just explains why it's very hard to have an enlightened dictatorship long term because there's so much power in that that those who are most power seeking and willing to use the most underhanded fucked up techniques will try to capture it. And to not lose the position to them, you have to be able to think through the things that they're thinking through better and engage in some of those tactics. And so how, how do you not get beaten by warring cultures without becoming a warring culture, right? And throughout history, so many of the peaceful cultures just got slaughtered by the warring cultures or they had to stop being peaceful cultures. So like this, this question. And I used to think more just in terms of system disposition. Well, it's based on the nature of what is being incentivized and what's perverse incentive and externality. So we, we need to create real cost, uh, real value costing and those types of things. And that's true. 
but I was underweighting how much there is a power law distribution of economic and political power where relatively few people have extremely outsized capability relative to most people. And what did it take psychologically for them to get there? And then that being there, they have both the motive and capacity to continue to stay there. And what does it take to do that? Um, so, uh, these are some of the questions that are on my mind. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for um, sharing uh, your thoughts. And, and just also, I think um, uh, I want to say that always present in these conversations is kind of a way to think about our thinking, to um, have a little bit of a, uh, a meta glimpse into uh, some of our habitual patterns of, of thinking and easy answers. Um, and I really appreciate about our conversations that uh, I walk away with more things to think about than I had when I started the conversation. So I don't walk away with with like, oh, I learned a bunch of stuff from Daniel. I usually almost walk away from these conversations with, I have a bunch of things to think about now. Um, and um, I'll say to our audience here that if there's anything in this conversation that has given you something to think about, get a pencil and paper or your device out and write down that thing that it's kind of stuck with you. You know, like what is something that, that, that you might think about a little bit more? I, and I would say, <clears throat> Um, you know, our conversations might, you know, as, as a, as a, a successful artist, a, a director, a thinker, um, you know, some of the conversations we've had have taken me years to sort through the kinds of questions I wrote down after a single conversation. Um, and that to me, you know, you're saying, hey, can you be around somebody that, that thinks differently, that, that offers you an opportunity to upgrade your thinking or upgrade your sense making? I just want to say is it's not just listening to you. It's actually being willing to grapple with something you said. And I would be willing to bet that some of the things I've grappled with, you didn't even know you said to me in a certain degree, and I've taken me a long way and, and it's actually driven a lot of growth. And, and I think that's what, that's what we hope, you know, that's what the building out project's really about is how do we help each other to, to lean away from the easy answers and lean into the things that we have to grapple with. And, uh, and out of that, there's a maybe maybe misplaced and hopefully not misplaced belief that we can actually uh, move the whole thing towards thriving for, for greater numbers of people. And um, in regards to your last point, that we can uh, have people that aren't sociopaths make a larger contribution to the world we live in. Can I add something to what you just said, Michael? Because I, really yeah, <laughs> I think people sometimes think that learning is mostly this process of reading or watching something or taking in information. And it's actually mostly the grappling with it. It's mostly the digestion and processing where it becomes your own. And the most insightful thing that you usually get from a book wasn't written in the book. It was your own insights that came from really contemplating and then researching and checking it out. And, um, and so, you know, we all know this in learning theory that when you start to teach something, you start to learn it in a new way because now you have to you have to be able to explain the questions and you have to do something with it, right? And this way, so often someone will read something and they can recall a very small percentage because it, there hasn't yet been an evolutionary impulse to say this matters enough to remember it because I was just reading it. But when I think about why is this relevant? What will I do with it? It starts to kind of neurologically store differently. Um, so in general, when I'm reading, I actually read pretty slowly because I'm reading something and then I'm looking up references 
And then I'm thinking about it and I'm relating it with various other things that I've known. And so it's more like reading as the center of a research process, right? And the difference, my friend Jordan Hall talks about uh, simulated thinking versus real thinking. Simulated thinking is I'm running a thought and then I'm saying maybe it's this other thought and I'm just running other, I'm running thoughts that have all entered my head from some external place. That's not really thinking yet, right? That's basically weighing memes and deciding which ones to propagate. Um, Real thinking is going to result oftentimes in me having insights that I I didn't then take from anywhere. And that's like, what really is the answer? I don't know. Let's not just pick through the ones that I've heard. Let's say, how would I even come to get clear on this? And what is my basis to think through it? So the beginning of really thinking, very important. And even insofar as the, this, so the, the most important thing is that your, your study process, your sense-making process will be largely mining your own sensing, right? It'll take something in, but then mining your own capability. As far as this direction of just what you take in goes, because we mentioned this, I just want to share a very like simple, most people have probably heard this, but not done it yet, um, thing that is, will probably do more for you than anything else we've talked about today if you do it. Take the social media apps off your phone. If you keep your social media, keep it on your computer, but just don't don't have it continuously available to hijack your attention. If you want to do art, if you want to start your thing, whatever the fuck it is, don't have something that can continuously engage your attention so that you don't get to just be bored and then think about the thing that you care about. Um, so take them off your phone. Turn all the notifications off on your phone or almost all of them if you want text or whatever to turn off. And then if you keep social media, reconfigure it where you go through your feed and just start unfollowing everything that is not making you a better person by seeing it. And then intentionally go find the things you want to learn about and follow them and make sure you're curating dissenting views, smart dissenting views. So you should be seeing things that actually kind of bother you, but are thoughtful. Um, those couple steps will start to help a lot. Yeah, I can second the uh, turning the notifications off on this thing. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. But there's some really simple things that, that can make a, a, a big difference in the quality of life uh, in a very, very short period of time. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for your time tonight. Really, um, you know, like, uh, like I just want to share with our audience how uh, much we appreciate your, your willingness to, to continue into the dialogue, into the conversation. And, and even, even when it's not always, there's not always an easy answer to give in these questions, uh, being willing to give it a go and, and kind of share a perspective, a place that one human being called Daniel is standing in uh, and how you see things. Um, uh, it, I think it's, it's really invaluable. And if anything, if we could learn to begin to stand in those places ourselves and, and kind of speak with some similar clarity, uh, I think we would see some up-leveling of, of at least our dialogue, if nothing else. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you, Rachel. It was really great to have this conversation. And I look forward to talking to you again, Daniel. I appreciate you all hosting these conversations and inviting everybody and inviting me. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire, big ideas, and bold action. Be sure to download Boldly You in the App Store, Google Play, or online at bold.ly forward slash Y-O-U. 
Boldly You is an app and learning platform igniting your burning desire, big ideas, and bold action, generating a future for a thriving humanity.